Welcome to the Men Among Demons podcast. In a disoriented world, this is the podcast that asks what would happen if we truly put Christ at the center of our thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Opperwall. And I'm your host, Dr. Greg Weeb. Hi, Greg. Hey, man. Here's the deal. You sent me a text a week ago, a couple weeks ago, week and a half ago, said, dude, I just got it. Medicine is our society's religion. I know you've basically said this, but I just got it. Healthcare is literally the national religion of Canada. So that's what I want to talk about in general. Um, And I think all of our conversations are genuine, but this one's genuine in the sense of like, I don't, I don't really know what exactly we, we need to talk about here. And I think the conversation itself will be about figuring out sort of what the, what the question is. Um, I don't know, actually, maybe the way to begin is, is, uh, to hear how you grew up as an American thinking about healthcare, because as a Canadian, I grew up thinking about healthcare and being given this, uh, impression that healthcare in Canada, uh, was really good and really important that we had achieved something, uh, sort of truly remarkable, um, and, and I, in a certain sense, I don't, I, I don't think that's untrue, but you know, there, there's certainly this kind of reverence. I mean, it has to do with identity, right? Uh, healthcare in Canada, uh, you know, health, healthcare has to do with how we do it in Canada has to do with fundamentally with Canadian identity. And we grew up thinking very highly of ourselves. I, uh, I grew up thinking very highly of, of, and this is pre Michael Moore, right? Like you remember whatever film that was that he did. I remember when that film came out and he was, uh, you know, all about, all about, um, you know, more socialized medicine or whatever, uh, you know, looking to Cuba and looking to Canada and looking to these different examples. And, you know, as Canadians are feeling pretty good about ourselves. That's how I, that's how I remember it. Um, now it, 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 in recent days, and we've sort of avoided talking about COVID and I don't, I don't really expect to talk about COVID per se a lot here, especially the science and all that. Um, you know, what, what do I, what do I know? But, you know, there are things happening now that have strongly, strongly disabused me of this myth of Canadian healthcare as kind of a, a beacon, a shining light into the world. Um, so that's, that's my background to it, right? Uh, I have, I have been disabused in the last two years of, of an important founding myth. Uh, of Canadian identity. Well, that's Canadian identity. I grew up Canadian. What, what was it like growing up American? How did you think or talk about healthcare? Was is there anything analogous uh, in in your growing up to to that kind of experience of healthcare as a national identity? Well, I don't. I I don't think so. And that's the that was one of the key insights and why I said specifically healthcare is literally the national religion of Canada. As an American Canadian who grew up in the U.S., but I'm a Canadian citizen now. I've been here for uh, this is the 14th. This will be year 14 for me. Uh, you know, I know I know both systems relatively well at this point. And 
what's notable about Canada is exactly what you just said, is the degree to which it is such a key identity piece. It's not just the system in and of itself, which is what it is, and in many ways is a, is a, a pretty strong system. Um, it's the fact that Canadians, this is one of the, this is probably the single most essential differentiator that Canadians see culturally and politically between themselves and the United States. And Canadians are constantly comparing ourselves to the United States, constantly, sometimes with uh, clear envy and sometimes with a clear smug superiority. Lately, the latter more often, <laughs> uh, and not always for terribly, sometimes for reasons I, I kind of understand. Lately, the latter more often. Lately, you've been hearing I think a that, lot I of think smug, smug superiority. Smug superiority, yeah. yeah. I think if you Over look back oh, to the 1990s, you know, when Canada's economy was pretty slow and you could do way better in the United States and the disparities in something like healthcare were not nearly as large, even though the U.S. had a private system, uh, there, was, there was lots of envy on the part of, of Canadians of, of the United States. And a lot of people left Canada to go to the United States, you know. Um, now, if there's any trend at all, I think it might be the opposite. But yeah, growing up in the United States, healthcare is, of course, a very important thing. And it's a big deal. And it becomes really wrapped up in, you know, your employment situation, because that was the primary way of accessing quality healthcare. But it's not a national identity piece. Uh, and if anything, uh, Americans, the types of circles that I grew up in anyway, which were, you know, sort of left of center, fairly bourgeois, well-established circles, were pretty envious of the Canadian system. And, and a lot of people still are, um, you know, on, on the, on that point in and of itself, which I don't really want to dwell on too much. It, it, it does, it certainly hampers Canada that we're only, only ever comparing ourselves to the United States. Because if you look at other metrics for other developed countries that have, um, you know, public, publicly funded healthcare systems of various types. Canada has a single payer insurance system, which a lot of Americans don't understand, by the way, that that's what it is. Uh, Britain has a properly socialist medical system. Um, Americans may often think that Canada has that, which we don't. But uh, if you compare it to other developed nations, you know, besides the United States, Canada is, you know, middling to below average in terms of most of the metrics that people like to look at. It's not great. It's not it's not a train wreck, but it's it's not particularly good. <laughs> Other countries do a better job. So on on that point, you know that point is is what it is. Um, I think there are ways in which Americans are not dissimilar, um, but yeah, there's a special piece to it in in Canada. So I wonder if what what's best for us to explore on this show, rather than the, the science of COVID or picking apart, you know the various merits of the two systems and the American system, by the way, has, it has enormous merits. I mean, American hospitals are phenomenal places. If you are well insured in the United States, it is fantastic. And this is one of the big reasons it doesn't change because a lot of people who are enfranchised within that system, they don't want to let go of a 30 minute ER wait time guaranteed. Are you kidding me? You can walk. I remember as growing up, I could walk in to see any specialist I wanted whenever I wanted. I didn't need a referral. I had an issue with my eye. I went straight to an ophthalmologist. The next day. And they checked me out and I was well insured. So I don't pay anything for it. Every, I mean, it is phenomenal <laughs> if you are in the right. It's just that it leaves a lot of people behind. And that's the strength of the Canadian system. You know, you, we don't really leave anyone behind. Um, but, but the piece that's maybe worth exploring is that it as a kind of cultus and as this, well, as I said in that text, the religion of this society, which was the thing that kind of dawned on me and really had me had me thinking, um, and you know, not to un unpack COVID in and of itself, but COVID I think has proved that out really, really well. 
you know, it's right now it feels like, and this is, I think, to a large degree true in the United States as well, but even more so maybe in Canada. Uh, it's true in Western Europe too. But the, the, it seems like there's almost an incapacity at this point to do, to think of anything other than people's physical health, which is not unimportant, but it is also not everything. Uh, and I think we've put basically things like longevity and basic medical safety at the center of what our society is spiritually. And it seems like those are the, almost the only goods we can talk about anymore. Uh, and as Christians, that's a, that's a problem, not because we are radically opposed to that, but because, you know, as this podcast is, is, is about, like, what, if we, are, if we put Christ at the center of our thinking, put Christ at the center of our lives, I think the way that we take care of each other medically would unfold pretty differently. Like it's, it's, it's an interesting time right now in Canada, precisely because healthcare is such an important part of the identity. It's a real crisis point. And I feel like you're going to see it. So for example, I saw, <clears throat> you know, things have been with the, with Omicron variant, things are heating up in the States just because of how, you know, just how amazingly efficiently this virus spreads you know, even if it's even if it's less virulent, the absolute numbers uh, of of tough cases wind up going up. And you hear little snippets of like, uh, you know, hospitals in Connecticut are under real strain. They are finding that patients are having to uh, be in beds in hallways, and nurses are having to take double shifts just to make sure there's coverage. Uh, and and you know, wait times are you know, a couple of hours and like, this is a real crisis. I'm like, that is normal healthcare in Canada. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a <laughs> Tuesday the, afternoon before prior to the pandemic. That's yeah. how things were prior to the pandemic. Right. So they, the pandemic has only exacerbated that. Right. So the whole thing has been like, really the merit has been you, the universality of, of the coverage. And that's what we've been really, really, uh, really, really hinged upon. So now all of that's under pressure, Right extreme pressure and what what covid has done has shown that if you sacrifice everything for universe you know universal coverage you have certain vulnerabilities like our number of icu beds in canada is way way under what they are in comparable populations uh in in the developed world way under yeah and not and not just the united states i mean it's always it's a political is it because the united states is a, is a very unique thing as well but even just compared to france germany we have you know what a third of the number of beds per beds per um per capita than germany but the point the point is that then you know we've we've got the system that we've been very proud of and identified with and now is under pressure and so then what's going to happen you're going to have it, what it feels like is that you have governments that are willing to sacrifice everything you know the easiest is to sacrifice uh you know charter rights and freedoms of the populace in order to protect the system right we don't have we don't have robust we don't have i I haven't heard any conversation raised in kind of official halls. I don't pay very close attention, so you know I'm I'm happy to be corrected. But what I what I see are you know uh, editorialists and opinion columnists trying to raise what a you know what a disaster our healthcare system is uh, as a result of all of this. And but that conversation doesn't really seem to get echoed in official in official halls. So I feel like what you're gonna what you're gonna find is this kind of uh, you know splitting on the issue right where some people are gonna are gonna want to take that healthcare identity and say because this is so important to us it needs to be reformed in order to work better 
given all these vulnerabilities that it's laid out. And then on the other side, you'll see people who are basically like, no, the, you know, because it's so important to us, we should maintain the system as it is. But on, on, on both sides, you know, uh, you know, so it's going to be a bit of a crisis point at which, at which, you know, no one really knows how it's going to go from here. But, but the point being that, 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 you know, exactly it is, it is, uh, you know, this, this, you know, focus of attention, this, this, I, I, you know, I don't know. Well, it is, but it is this, it is this, it is this cultus, right? So that really the thing, the thing is that it's, you know, it's part of the mythos, right? The mythology of Canada to have healthcare. And that's exactly why you're going to get a, a crisis, a, you know, a so, kind of a social crisis, because now you're, you know, now we're in the thick of a, of a, of a real difficult time in something that constitutes the mythology of Canada itself. Yeah, that, well, that's right. I think I think what COVID does on the on that spiritual plane is it really challenges it challenges our faith. If our religion, to a very large degree, is healthcare, um, and our faith is in this medical system, and this is something this is something that I think we share with most Americans and most people in the Western world to a very large degree. Our faith is in the security that we believe medical technology and medical experts can provide us. And what COVID does, whether we like it or not, is it, it just mock, it mocks that faith completely. And it says, look, you have the system that you have, and it's had tremendous successes throughout the 20th century, but it has, it has absolutely just, it has just failed. It's failed to deal with COVID at a populational level. We have these vaccines now that are, very effective at keeping individual people from getting severely ill. And that's, that's a win. I mean, I, th- I think we should be happy about that. Uh, I think it's great. But if you look systematically, it's clear that we, we, we simply did not have what it took to deal with this. Uh, the vaccines that we hoped would get us out of it, again, it, from the point of view, from a kind of epidemiological point of view, the point of view of the, of the population and the system, they, they didn't work. They weren't sufficient, you know, the virus mutated right around them. And then bang, now we have way more cases than we, uh, uh, serious cases than we can handle. And uh, so the vaccines weren't effective for that purpose. Again, they they protect me and that's great. And I'm happy about that. But um, the system wasn't sufficient for, for all sorts of reasons, not enough hospital beds. But but the the thing that I feel like maybe we have to sort of have to say within all this is to remind people that no system was ever going to be sufficient because this is not this is not a thing that we can actually put our faith in. That doesn't mean that we become nihilists, I don't think, and say, well, there's, we shouldn't bother with anything. You know, just let let a person who gets an infection you know, <laughs> go untreated and just die, and like, who cares? Or not, uh, not at all. I mean, I think we should try to do the things that we can do. And there's a very, very strong tradition in the Orthodox Church of the importance of medical healing, both through miraculous healings, which are very important all the way from the time of Jesus himself, but also, you know, many saints who have been medical doctors, both ancient and much more modern, who have used the technologies of their era to the best of their ability to heal people. And that's seen as a gift, a a charism to help heal people and their diseases. 
it's a great thing to try to do that. But the shift that I've seen in our society, and this is where I don't think Americans are a huge exception, is that, is that shift to put our faith in it. Like this will save us, right? Um, we, and we look back and think of all of the communicable diseases that we have basically conquered. Smallpox has even been straight up eradicated. Polio is on the absolute verge of, of total uh, extinction on the planet Earth for humans. Those are big wins, but I think we somehow got this idea once we had penicillin and some of these vaccines and now smallpox, which was a scourge, is gone. And diphtheria, I, you know, I've never once thought my kids might die of diphtheria. A hundred years ago, that's something you'd be, you could easily have happened to me and, and, and on and on and on. And it's like we've gotten, we've looked at that pattern and said, see, we can, we can conquer absolutely anything. Medicine will fix. And, and if we haven't conquered a specific thing yet, well, it's just, we just need a little more time and we just need a little more technology. And the reality is that isn't true. There will always be something. And so we cannot put our faith in these technologies and these processes to keep us safe. Despite all of this, you and I could die anytime. Uh, and, and that'll always be true. So our faith has to go somewhere else without abandoning the work of healing people when we can, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's right. I mean, you've reminded me why what why I was going on that last rapid trail for, which is exactly that, <clears throat> excuse me, um, in, in the midst of a crisis point, it's only a, it's, uh, that is, you know, such, such as not, such, such as it is now, it's only really a crisis if you, if you stake your identity with, with that mythology. As soon as, as soon as you can accept human mortality in a way more fundamentally than we culturally have been able to do in North America as the, as the pandemic has, has demonstrated. Once, once you're able to sort of learn to accept your mortality, then how healthcare operates is just like, then you can consider any number of ideas. What do I really care? There's going to be, there's going to be, uh, uh, shortcomings and benefits to all sorts of different systems. And you might, you might tweak things. You might radically overhaul them. Nothing's going to work quite the way you want it to. Uh, and so you're making trade-offs, but basically you can, you can, you know, make improvements and I, ideologically, like I, I don't really have a, have a, have a huge stake. The issue is exactly, um, the issue is exactly that. Yeah. As this came around, it, 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 it you know, a couple of years ago now, it became very clear, very quickly that we had assumed that we could control all things. <laughs> Right, that we just had we had a handle on the situation so thoroughly that we could devote, you know, untold resources on trying to cure things, on trying to cure old age, basically, right? Throw, uh, you know, um, the bulk of our research money into you know heart disease and cancer, which are the kinds of things you die of when you don't die of of the other things of diphtheria. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly right. Um, but and I think, you know, go ahead. Well, yeah, but it's been uh, just to, just to put an exclamation point on it. It is a real problem and people don't, people don't see how people don't see how much they presume that bodily health is kind of the fundamental good. There, there doesn't seem to me right now to be much else on the list of things that we sort of can socially agree upon as goods other than the lengthening of lives. 
Except when we don't want that. You know, we also have medical assistance in dying in Canada. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a different good, which is now death. Death becomes a good. And that that that's probably a whole other episode, but it quite frightens me, to be honest. Um, but when we're not thinking about <laughs> people who want to die <laughs> and that we think should, uh, it, it's like, you know, any year of life is is a gain and that a long life is just just fundamentally better. Uh, if you think about when someone dies, you know, the first thing people tend to ask is how, how old are they? The first thing Orthodox Christians usually ask in my experience is what's their first name? And there's a reason Orthodox do that. And that is because we're going to pray for them. We're going to pray for them by that first name. Uh, and this has been observed by others. This isn't an observation I myself have made, but people who write about death and, and other, in how Orthodox respond to it, it's, that's usually the question. Oh, what was, what was her name or what was his name? But I think in the world, the question is usually how old were they? And, and then there's an immediate, there's a, like a test happening, you know, and if you say 87, it'll be like, oh, okay. You know, yeah, that was right. okay. And then, but you know, when my brother died <laughs> in 2016, that, that was, that was okay. That one was fine. <laughs> uh, my brother died in 2016. How old is he? 29. Oh, oof. now it's not that that's all wrong. I mean, losing my brother when he was 29 is clearly a tragedy in a way that, you know, when my grandmother died a couple of years ago, who, who was 87, it just simply wasn't, you know, that that's the kind of in the expected order of things. And I don't think Christians disagree with that fundamentally that, you know, the tragic sudden and entirely unexpected loss of a 29 year old is much as a much bigger shock to everybody's system. It was much bigger from like, you know, orders of magnitude are harder for me to process than like losing my grandma, you know, what you just expect to do. So it's not like there's nothing there, but I think that move to, um, to act as though well, that's the metric by which we're going to decide, like, basically whether someone had a good life. And I was just talking to someone else today about, about the loss of my brother and saying something that I think people find really surprising when I say this, which was that, yeah, we lost him at 29, but you know, now having kind of processed all the grief and all the, all the hard work I had to do, and it was hard. Uh, I look at it and I think, you know, overall, um, I don't know. I mean, Joe, Joe lived a life focused. That's my brother's name. Joe lived a life focused on love for other people on his relationships with his friends and his family. That's what he devoted himself to. That's what he invested his time in. And of the people I've known, I've known plenty of 92 year olds who I think have lived, you know, less fully and, and whose legacy is much more fraught than my brother at 29. Just the she, and this comes right out of scripture, right? Old, old age is not, uh, is not wisdom. Great. Gray hair is not wisdom for a man, right? Wisdom. It's also a very ancient notion, even, even outside of Christianity, that the good life is not marked by how many years you get. The good life is marked by your commitment to virtue. And my brother was not a Christian, but was pretty committed to the virtue, I think, of, of love and relationships is what mattered to him. And so, on the whole, not bad, you know. <laughs> I think he even said at his memorial, you know, well done, Joe. And uh, and that gives, like, I think that's really important to keep in mind. But our society has made this shift to just say, well, length of days is all that we can really think about. And we're obsessed with it to a point that we are beginning to sacrifice the quality of those days for ourselves uh, through something like COVID, but also even before COVID because of this just absolutely uh, laser focus on keeping as many people alive for as long as we can.
I want to come back. We, I mean, we'll have to come back to the, the, you know, the idea of quality of life, but I do want to tease out a little bit of this, you know, length of days as an end of itself <clears throat> or the, this idea because, the, because something happened with COVID that, that made it, that, re, that seemed to reveal our, our, our thoughts about, you know, dying uh, as a senior or dying in old age aren't quite what we think they are. Now, we had a lot of problems. I mean, there were, there were very serious problems with the way COVID went through care homes, right? And that really shed light on, 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 on how we think about and, uh, and care for or don't and incorporate or don't, uh, our elderly into our, into our, uh, you know, uh, social lives, right? We tend to, um, you know, bracket them out and stuff them away in homes uh, w- where they can be forgotten. And there's something that, you know, is, has been troubling about that for a long time. And then this, and this kind of shed light on it. But there was also this sense in which like we rapidly, I found like we rapidly turned our, our society upside down and we're, and there was a this willingness to sacrifice um, the lives of our children, not literally, but the you know the the flourishing of our of the young people for the sake of um, for the sake of the elderly who who could be expected to die even you know within the year. I mean, people right there was there's you know people in long term care homes. The average stay in a long term care home is what. You knew this number a year, year uh, and a half, or something like that. Not, yeah, most or it was less than a year. Anyway, it was it's not that long. You know, these people are at the end of their lives. Yeah. And w- so, without like without, I just don't want to seem. I don't want to seem uh, like uh, ca- you know callously uh, trying to you know trying to justify or rationalize uh, the death of people in old age. Like those are acceptable deaths. But there is something about the response, you know. Um, the, the the willingness to put a stop at, at the at, among populations where where COVID wasn't a real threat in order to protect those who were near end of life that was that seemed really strange and that made it seem that <clears throat> excuse me that dying in old age isn't okay if you were to die from COVID yeah but if you want to die then we we will. Well, we'll kill you. And I even, and I even, it's really interesting irony. And I even heard so, like, I have a, I have a, fr- a friend who, you know, is, uh, um, older than I am and who is like, you know, I know I'm going to die, but just, you know, not from COVID. I just don't want it to be from COVID. And there was, and so like, I, what I'm really trying to get back at is this sense of control, right? It's, it's not, there's something about what's happening that, that it's not just that it's okay. It's okay to die when you're older and not okay to die when you're younger. Um, that's sort of how it manifests uh, when we're not thinking about it too much, but something like this comes along and it's like, okay, we're also not okay with you dying when you're older. We're not okay with dying older. If we're dying out of control, right? If we're, if we're dying, that's, right. that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Uh, if we're, if you're dying a death from COVID, even if you're, if you, even if you're old, um, is is unacceptable 
because COVID is unacceptable, because it's unacceptable for us to be in a pandemic, because it's unacceptable for us not to have control over the, over the health over the health situation. But if but if you want medical assistance in dying, that's a death that you're in control over. So that that's good, and we have we we must give that to you. It's basically a human right, and I like that is really really interesting because I think, and this is just coming to me as we're talking here, the Christian approach, I think the so is the traditional Christian approach is in fact the absolute opposite. You don't get medical assistance in dying because you are not entitled to decide when you die. But, you know, if COVID gets you even at a younger age than you might have expected, then then this is, you know, then, then God has, has taken you now. This is your time. Um, and, that, and, you know, that is maybe what puts us so deeply out of step, you and I and many, many other Orthodox, with the world around us. It's uh, To me, it's been kind of a weird space to navigate because a lot of people are out there, you know, who are like maybe on the hard right and saying, bah, you know, this is no big deal. And those old people were going to die anyway and screw them. You know, I don't think that's a Christian response. It doesn't, that doesn't seem right to me, but, but there's also, and then the other side, exactly what you're saying. It's like, we have to have control. It's unacceptable. And as though it's, it goes against the grain of nature for us to not have control as though the normal state is that we have control over diseases and we, you know, we fix them and we control what viruses do. And so these deaths that are out of control are unacceptable. I think, I feel like the Christian is just in such a different, um, it, it kind of an inverted perspective that we find ourselves kind of on one side or the other of these debates in ways that are really always very awkward and we don't really belong in them because to me to me when i go if i go natu- naturally which is to say i didn't kill myself basically um or, or get murdered i suppose <laughs> then then that's that's what death is and if i die in christ that's what a good life is the number of years on it is in God's hands. Um, but if I'm sick and I, and, you know, and I can be healed, again, there's a very strong Christian tradition to say that. But th- I think that that has to be, for the Christian, that has to be an expression of God's love. It's not because uh, we can control death. And it's not, it's not because death is bad. I think that's the thing for Christians that's, it's hard to articulate. You know, death in Christ is the beginning of, of eternal life. Death is literally the means God has used to unite all of creation with himself on the cross. Because of the fall, you know, it wasn't supposed to be there, which is why I think we, the healing is symbolic of God's love. Uh, And, and yet this is a fallen world. And so in, in the fallen world, death is supposed to be there. Right. This is this is part of how God redeems the fallen world. That's part of why that's that's key to why Christ comes, dies, and rises again. Is to say, you know, we've introduced death into the world, and therefore through that very thing that we've introduced through our through our choice, through that very thing will come life. And so it makes death a very very complicated thing for Christians to navigate the balance between healing and acceptance. But I don't think I don't think our society is doing a very good job of it. And you can see this in how how things play out politically. You know, all of the the unbelievable amounts of tension. People are at each other's throats over this virus. Um, I don't think that needs to be true. 
you know, if we accept that we will do what we can and we won't do what we can't, we will, we will care for one another because we are Christians or, or and we're, we're humans and we, we treat others with love, but we know that some of us will die and we accept that. And, and yeah. And then I think the rest would be kind of nibbling around the edges to some degree, you know, exactly which policies that's always a complicated conversation. That's always a difficult conversation, but I don't think it needs to be so heated. Uh, I hate, I also hate to see it get heated inside the church, which it does. Um, because for me, it's just like, I, I don't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers. Um, you know, we're going to make the best decisions we can to care for ourselves and to express our love for others. Other people's decisions toward that end might look different from mine. Um, but I think we all need to be a little more humble toward each other. Yeah, that's right. You know, there's a few different threads um, that'll be worth picking up. It did, you know, early on, I had a friend who wrote, who wrote a piece, um, you know, wanting to suggest that uh, one of the implications of the incarnation, um, one of the implications of the incarnation is a kind of uh, acceptance of our embodiment in humility um, that, that is, that is, you know, definitive for life in Christ. Now in that particular time, uh, that he, you know, he used that, he used that as a way to illustrate why it's, it's for that very reason. Okay. To, uh, you know, hit the pot, you know, suspend even church services. And, you know, in addition to wearing masks and things like that, um, and I think that there's probably some truth to that, but it did strike me then and all the more so now as, as time goes on in this thing, um, that the significance of the humility of embodiment, um, is, is, is exactly that some things are more important than bodily health. Like, so you take, you take a story, um, you know, what is the significance? You take a story like Moses, uh, and the, the serpent on the rod, uh, when, when, um, the Israelites are plagued by, uh, snake bite, or Israelites are snake bitten. And the, and the solution to the problem that, that, uh, God gives to Moses is, um, make a, make a serpent out of bronze and wrap it on a pole and, and, and bear it aloft, uh, before the Israelites so that everyone who looks upon it might be healed. And this represents the cross. Right. In the traditional Christian exegesis, even it's identified in the new Testament as a symbol of the cross. E- yes. Yeah. Yeah. Where Hebrews maybe. Um, yeah, I think that's exactly true. right. Yeah. And so, you know, what was so so the idea that i wanted to, to that i want to toy that i want to uh, you know sort of tease out is exactly that what is um an instance uh, uh, in the old testament of a miraculous he, you know bodily healing right because we're talking about you know actual snakes actually biting people and making them die a bodily death and there's a kind of symbolic uh mystical miraculous uh, solution to this the real significance of the solution, as we find out, is Christ. That the that the pole is an image of uh, the cross, and the bronze serpent an image of 
Christ who becomes sin for us and dies on the cross uh, for our salvation. Um, which is to say that the sort of the base level, the, the base uh, layer meaning of the story is uh, one of, of the restoration of bodily health whose true meaning revealed in Christ is not about bodily health, but of spiritual health, right? Is that the true healing is to be found uh, in Christ. Whatever happens to one at a bodily level, that whether you're sick or, uh, or ailing uh, or, or healthy, that all people can look to, um, uh, to Christ for, for true healing, Right. So there is an, in fact, there, you know, that the, that the use of the, the use of the incarnation of this Im- embodiment is not right. And so there's something, there's something about like that I wanted to address with that, that the idea that the humility of embodiment, um, doesn't just mean that we should sacrifice all things, uh, for the body. That's not what it means at all. It, in fact, it means, it means, that some things are more important than bodily health, that even if it's more healthy to uh, stay apart and not have services together and not celebrate together because of the epidemiological risk that there is, that some things, that union with Christ, true health in Christ, are more important than the risks that one takes in a bodily way. Yeah, well, I think that's exactly right. And the, the demonic twist is to just flip it around. I, mean, I feel like I feel like what you're saying is that bodily health is symbolic of real health. Correct. And real health is something deeper than than that, which involves the body. I mean, we await resurrected bodies. We don't await. We're not here to await a disembodied floating around in heaven afterlife. That's not what what any of this means for an, from an Orthodox point of view. So bodily health is this very, very powerful symbol that is itself, like all true mysterious symbols, is itself actually connected and kind of is the thing in a certain sense, but isn't the thing in another sense. And so to care for another person's bodily health or your own is to tend to that extremely important, you know, symbol that's been given to us, every one of us who have bodies. But but then the question you're then pushing on is, what does it mean to care for the body? In this world, with its demonic tendencies, what it means to care for the body is to get that body to live as many years as we can. And so, for example, this is just coming up with our parish. You know, the city of Hamilton would much prefer if we didn't receive communion. We, we can still meet within certain capacity limitations. And, uh, but we're supposed to avoid, it's literally, you know, avoid they didn't ban it, but they said avoid things like where you, people have to congregate in the same place, things like, and they listed communion, you know, receiving communion. Oh, they did. They actually named it. Yeah, they did. And and so we had a little discussion about like, what do you do with this? And I just said, well, look, they're, they're not saying it's illegal for us to receive communion. I don't think they have the right to say that it's illegal for us. And sure, of course, from the point of view of the city of Hamilton, that's just a frivolous thing. Like, guys, it's a pandemic. Why? Like, just skip your 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 grape juice or your wine, like, come on, you know, from their point of view, from the Orthodox Christian point of view, like that is the single most essential thing that I do to care for my body. 
Nothing is more important in my caring for my body and in our, in our pastoral caring for the bodies of everyone in the church. There is nothing more important than receiving communion. So even if it may create a higher risk of viral transfer that I'm standing closer to each other, closer to other people during communion than when I'm not, um, we, we simply have to boldly say as Christians, no, we will prioritize this above viral transmission because this is the single most important thing. So it's still, we're still caring for our bodies, but we are envisioning that in a far deeper and a far more profound way than saying, well, if I don't have a virus, that body is healthier than the body with the virus. To me, if neither of those bodies have received, <laughs> then they're both much less healthy than someone with a severe case of the virus who has just received communion. That's the healthiest person in the room, you know, or in the if, you, if communion is brought to them in the hospital and they're struggling with COVID and they've just received communion, that's, that's a healthier body than somebody, you know, scarfing down pancakes and bacon on Sunday morning and, and free of, of any viral load inside of their system. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, and we say, right, we say that in our prayers, um, following communion, right? May this be for the healing of soul and body. And it, and it is, it is. And, and, but the thing is in the mystery of this Christian life, that doesn't always mean, you know, you receive communion and what, like your COVID will be cured. Like we know that's not the case. Sometimes it happens. I mean, we get these miraculous things and, and those are reminders to us, I think, of, of the fact that it is all in God's hands. Miraculous healings do occur and they may occur from receiving from the chalice and things like, you know, tumors vanishing. And like these things, they seem to happen as far as I can tell. It's pretty amazing. But they, they, most often they don't. Most often you receive communion and you still have COVID <laughs> tomorrow. Um, and what's really mysterious about this creative life is that it would seem that God has created viruses, I think. Can we avoid saying that? I mean, are they merely a product of the fall? <laughs> if they exist. Certainly created bacteria, created and they, may, they make us quite sick sometimes too. Uh, and that is really very, very profoundly mysterious. I mean, it seems to me like God's perspective on death is pretty different from our own. <laughs> and we're trying to reach out and get to that perspective. But we're in this society where the demonic turn is just say, no, 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 focus on this right now, right here, right now, your comfort and your length of days. And that's, that's what's good. Sacrifice everything to that idol. You know? Yeah, except that it becomes you know, clear very quickly that no matter what you sacrifice to it, you still can't control it to the, to the degree that, that you're hoping to. Well, and, and yes, and you don't get real health. I mean, look around us. Is this a healthy society? <laughs> we, have the, we have the longest life expectancy by a long shot of every, every, any society ever in all of history, mainly because we've cured so many communicable childhood diseases and, and people, you know, our infant mortality rates are just incredibly low. And that's, that's great. I am so glad that I haven't had to bury any of my children, which would be, I almost certainly would have if this was 1850. You know, I'm just, you'd expect to bury a few of those kids. I'm glad I don't live in that world. That must be very, very difficult. Um, I don't want it back. But so we've, we've got length of days. <laughs> We're pushing the envelope on lifespan, which is distinct from life expectancy, by the way. Lifespan has not increased much, even all the way back to ancient times. But life expectancy has increased tremendously. So we're most of us getting very long lives right into our 80s. We can expect to live into our 80s. But are, it, how healthy is this world? I mean, even just physically, you know, we have obesity epidemic. Um, you know, people are not don't feel very good, uh, and and then psychologically, things get worse with every single passing year. 
you know, more and more and more diagnoses, more and more and more people needing to access therapies and medications. Um, I don't see a particularly healthy world around me right now. I see a world where people live a long time and are not very healthy. I really and truly think that I would far rather die at age 45, having lived my life in the peace of Christ, having lived my life receiving communion, you know, on a regular basis, being connected to my Lord and Savior that way with a, with a sense of love and a sense of meaning and a sense that I am loved. I think I take that versus dying at 85, you know, just what I, I watching TV the whole time. What are we doing? You know, and feeling depressed and maybe, maybe taking medications for that and being, you know, overweight and, you know, not like, I'm not trying to fat shame or something like people struggle with their weight for all kinds of reasons, but like, we're not, and then people struggle mentally for all kinds of reasons. But I just don't see a society that's actually getting any healthier. And in my own little microcosm in my own little life, I get healthier when I put myself within the patterns of the tradition, the symbols of the tradition, the sacraments, then I'm much healthier on all those fronts, physically, mentally. And if it, you know, maybe I'll die soon, but uh, good, I'll take it versus just schlepping along, you know? So what is health is a big question here. Yeah, well, exactly right. Because you can, I mean, you can point to all kinds of metrics of malaise, like, you know, drug use and yeah, drug and, use and uh, obesity, like you mentioned, and 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 whatever. But you know, alcohol use is getting to be a big problem. You know, increasing consumption of cannabis. This isn't a healthy world. <laughs> Fundamentally, for for some of us, are realizing that it's really just a kind of crisis of meaning that people are having. Whose whose solution is um, is to be found higher and at a higher register. And it's counterintuitive, right? It's counterintuitive for us because we, because these problems manifest themselves in bodily ways, um, alcohol addiction and whatever that that feels it's a real somatic kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, and even the psychological issues are absolutely somatic. They're of course they're related to our neurons right? and our, and they have huge bodily effects. Like I used to get terrible back pain when my anxiety was a much bigger problem than it is now. Um, but anyway, not to de- not to derail you, but of course, there's a huge somatic element of it. But the, the notion right now is, well, if we fix the somatic, all we are is bodies, right? That's a key thing that our society assumes. We're just bodies. And the mind is like nothing. You know, people, people dismiss the notion that I've cured my back pain by tackling, you know, my, my anxiety, which I've done by... <laughs> Uh, to the extent that I've done it by devoting myself to Christ, you know, your average medical scientist would say that's impossible and ridiculous, but it's true. So sorry. I mean, sucks to be you, I guess, but I'm not just a body. Well, and in fact, the the opposite, it's just because the opposite is the, is the predominant assumption, which is that, which is that all issues of the body can be solved medically through the body. And actually, even issues of the mind can be solved medically through the body. Because you're just a brain. You're just because you're just a brain. And Christians were refu- we're refusing to say to say that. And so in our COVID care, I mean, we're kind of drawing this first half to an end. In our COVID care and in our medical care, you know, the cultus of our society around us, it seems to me, is centered on those ideas that you are just a body for one thing, and therefore the continuation of that bodily existence is inherently good and trumps all other possible goods. Um and, and control, like you just said, is key. So if you do want to die, you know, ending your own life by your own choice is kind of the best death 
that we can imagine now, you know, at 85, killing yourself, that's kind of how we want to go because we're nothing but bodies. We want control. We want long years. And the Christian looks at this and, <laughs> and it's none of that is true. We want full health. That is life in Christ. Healing each other is crucial in that way. So sometimes we find ourselves on the sides of the doctors, but it is the ultimate good is, is to live in Christ. So if you're going to say you can't receive communion, just as one example, you can't receive communion because it'll trans transfer a virus. I think that's something to which Christians just have to say, no, it doesn't work like that. We refuse, you know, no matter what. No matter what. But that's all to say healthcare is the religion of our society and it's packed in with all these other demonic moves, I think. Uh, and here we are in an awkward space. Well, maybe we can uh, keep talking a bit more about this in the second half. What do you think? I think so. I'm up for it if you are. All right. Well, thanks for listening to uh, the first half of this episode. Always great to have you along. Here's a taste of what you'll get in uh, the second half today. If you join us on patreon.com slash metamongdemons, and we hope you will. It's been an acute sort of bodily a crisis of bodily health that has that has brought to the surface all all sorts of things that we've been able to ignore about the spiritual health of our societies. I mean, it raises the question of what bodies are for, right? Well, right. And we seem to be answering that this world's answer, the sort of demonic structure answer, is for whatever pleasure I want to get out of it. All right. Well, good to talk to you, Greg. Thanks, Dan. Your support makes this podcast possible. Find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash menamongdemons for exclusive content and to join the conversation. 